So with that, we, we do need some more nursery workers. Um, there was quite a few in there too. I think there's quite a few in there today also. Um, that's an area that we are um, continuing to try to grow and strengthen. And so we ask, uh, we've done the praying for you. So <laughs> volunteer, <laughs> help. Um, but it's neat to see the, the kids and how they are growing in their knowledge of God and their, uh, their joy in being, in being here with the teachers and with other kids. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Titus chapter 3. <clears throat> Next week will be the last sermon in Titus, so this is the second to last one. So we are in verses 1 through 8. The title today is Saved, and throughout this series we have been... Hey, Julia, can you turn down the monitors a little bit? I hear myself a little too much. It's echoing back. Um, but we're doing a series on who is a church member, and what we've uh, said is every church member, or every believer is called a church member, so we, lo- we use believer and church member synonymously because no one in the New Testament do we see a church member apart from being a believer of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we look at chapter 3, it's kind of what we did in chapter 2, two weeks ago, from a little bit different angle. We are going to have a very clear picture of salvation. We're going to see how one becomes a believer, how one becomes a church member. And so my hope is that with great clarity, that you will see what salvation, that you'll see that salvation is what it is and what it's not. It's nothing like restoring a car, remodeling a house, redesigning a yard, or adding on a, a new addition to the house. It's nothing like those. In fact, all of those would utterly fail in comparison to what salvation actually is. Because salvation does not merely improve us or enhance us. It's something altogether different. And that's what we're going to look at, um, because when we understand that we are saved, we begin to come across the words like being made new, new creation. So we're going to see what that looks like today. And so I want to encourage you and invite you to now stand uh, as we read um, God's Word today. One thing that we do is we read, or we stand in the presence of God's Word. We also read God's Word, but we, we stand because we believe God's Word is like no other word, so we do it in honor of the Word. Um, so in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. Now I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. 
Let's, let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. And I ask that you now give us ears to hear your word, that we would have faith and grow in our faith. Increase our understanding of who you are and how you are a gracious and merciful God. Work today through the preaching of your word that you would be greatly honored and glorified. Father, I pray save us today. Save us. Help us to know you. God, we thank you for your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So there's two primary questions. We're going to ask more than two, but there's two primary questions I want us to ask today. If you look at verse 8, Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So we see the word, these things. We see that twice. And Titus is to insist on these things, and these things are excellent and profitable, meaning they're beneficial and good for all people. And so surely whatever Titus is being encouraged to insist on, Paul would say the same to us and say, you insist on these things. So, um, so I have two questions. What are these things that we are to insist upon, and how are these things to help us to be zealous for good works? We're going to take them in that order. Number one, what are these things we are to insist upon? So first, I want us to zero in on verse 5, and mainly the, verse, the first three, verse, three words of verse 5. It says, He saved us. Titus is being encouraged by Paul to remind the Cretans of their salvation, and that is what our whole passage is about. It's talking about salvation and how God has saved them and how they're to live because they're saved. And let me say, it is good to be reminded of our salvation. The gospel is not something that we, we come to in the beginning of our faith and we, we move on past. It's not the ABCs of our, uh, of our Christian walk and then we get on to D and E and F, and, and move on into different stages. The gospel is everything about who we are as believers. So it is the A to Z. The only thing we ever do is go deeper into the gospel. The gospel is the balm, is the only balm that, that when applied to our hearts makes us well. It, encur- it encourages us and strengthens us as believers. It's the only balm that, that is there that can actually bring... Um, our dead hearts to life spiritually. So I want to encourage you, it's good to be reminded. So as we go through this, some of you may be going, oh, I know about salvation. Great. I pray that, that you grow in that understanding today. If you're a believer, I, I pray just bask in these words of Paul. Let them comfort you. Let them comfort your soul. Let them fill you with joy. But let them spur you on also and what it is to live as one who has been saved. And so, first thing we see is Paul is saying, insist on these things, and there's these massive words, he saved us, referring to God has saved us. So that's that's primarily what Paul is saying, insist on. But what do we need to be saved from? Could be another question. 
That's what we have in verse 3. What do we need to be saved from? And here Paul gives a description of unbelievers, a description of all of us before we are saved. And when we read lists like this, I think if we're not careful, we can read them quickly, we can glance over them, and we can say, yep, this is other people, or we can say, yeah, that's kind of who I was before, and not give great attention to. But the more we understand the need we have to be saved, the greater we will love God, the more thankful we will be, and the greater we will be spurred on in our holiness, knowing who he has made us to be. So it's important for us as believers to regularly grow in our understanding of who we were before we were saved, that we would understand how great was God's grace. How much mercy did it really take to save us? And so in verse 3, it starts out with, we were foolish, and meaning we rejected God. In fact, in Psalm 14.1, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's the first way we're characterized, is we, we reject God, even if we say, well, I believe in God. We reject worshiping Him, believing that His Son is the Lord and Savior. So we reject Him, we're also characterized by disobedience we don't obey god god says love me with all your heart soul mind and strength love others also as you would love yourself we don't do that as unbelievers we definitely don't love god and we don't love others as god calls us to it says that we were led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures did you know you were a slave before being saved did you know you're a slave to sin All you do is sin. It's all we do as unbelievers is sin. It says sin is our master and we passed our days in malice and envy. Malice means wickedness. What this means is that according to God, all we did was sin. Everything we did was wicked in his eyes. Nothing was pleasing to him. So as I was thinking about this, my mind kind of went to a a two-year-old in the store Let's say Walmart, because it just seems like that's where it happens a lot. And you've seen the picture where the two-year-old falls on the ground in the temper tantrum, and like just the sprawling, the drooling, the yelling, the screaming. And if you're like a shopper at that moment, you just move to the next aisle. We'll get the rice later. And we'll just come back when that's taken care of, because we don't want to be around that, because there's nothing about that that we like, and the only thing that may go through our head is a little bit of sorriness for the parent at that moment, maybe. Or maybe we're just glad, oh, so glad we don't have two-year-olds anymore. Um, You know, whatever it may be. But the parent at that moment is also going, oh my goodness, what do I do? Nothing at that moment is pleasing to the parent. Nothing. You don't see the parent going, at least a good parent, going, this is wonderful. Would you like to go get ice cream now? I'd love to reward this. In fact, if you did this all the time, we'll, we'll go get all the ice cream you want. I love this. This is great. I love how you knocked down this whole row. And, you know, just that's what happens. And you don't see a parent doing it because at that moment, nothing is pleasing to the parent. Nothing. They're abhorred, probably embarrassed. And this is what Paul says is that that's how we acted all the time, in the sense that nothing we did was pleasing to God. Nothing before being saved was pleasing to God. Lastly, Paul says we also hated, uh, we, we hated, we were hated, and we were hated by others. We were hated and we hated others. 
We're not characterized by love. We're characterized by hate. We put up with people as long as, as they meet our needs, but once they stop fulfilling that purpose, we don't feel so bad casting them aside. We're very self-serving that way. That's one reason we see so many divorces today. Divorce is no longer about sharing a love and glorifying God, but it's about having our personal needs met. It's about being married for, for our sake, for ourselves to be loved. And when that person ceases to love us in the way we desire, we move towards divorce and we'll say, well, we fell out of love. Let's look for someone else. So we become very self-serving. We're not characterized by love, but characterized by hatred. So the first thing that Paul is saying, insist on these things, is before being saved, we need to know the utter depravity that we were in, just the sinfulness, the wickedness that we were in. And so if that's how we were, and yet Paul says in verse 5, insist that you've been saved by God, how is it that we were saved? And so to answer that, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at God's character, and we're going to look at God as Trinity. And so we'll walk through that. God's character, if you look at verse 5, we're told God saved us because not because of works done by us in righteousness. That word not is very key. Not by works done by us in righteousness. That makes sense, right? Verse 3, we Everything we do is wicked, is sinful, we're full of hatefulness. Obviously, we did not save ourselves. Nothing we did was pleasing to God, so God was not going, oh, wow, I'm so glad this is how they're acting. Now I will save them. But it says in verse 5, but according to his own mercy. Very key there, it's his mercy. So it says, not by our works, not by our righteousness, nothing we did, but according to his own mercy. So let me give a definition of mercy. I think this is in your bulletin. And mercy, mercy is God's goodness given to those who are in misery. God's goodness given to those in misery. And because of verse 3, because that's true of every unbeliever, meaning we're, we're full of sin, it means that we are in a miserable state whether we believe it or not. And that's key because some people know that they're in a miserable state. They just go, I'm I know I'm a sinner. They may not believe in God, but they just know that life's not right. Their life is horrible. Things are messed up. They know they're in a miserable state. But if you talk to many people, they will say, I really don't feel that miserable. I'm doing pretty good. I don't really believe in God, but it doesn't seem to really hurt me. You all know that if you put a frog in boiling water, it jumps right out. You know this. But you also know, and I'm sure because it's illustration and so many people have talked about this before, if you Put a frog in cool water and slowly heat it up. What does the frog do? It will, it will stay in the pot right until it dies. The entire time it will stay and it will die. He may even be in the water going, oh, this is great. This is so much better than that cool pond water I was in. This is warm. Oh, it's, in the one. it's like a little spa. Totally ignorant of the fact that he is about to die. Just because he's ignorant to the miserable position he is in does not make it any less miserable. And so we may not know we are sinful. We may not know that we're in misery, waiting for judgment. But our ignorance does not make our position any less miserable. That's key to understanding. We, we need to know that. Because our, our sin blinds us. It blinds us to the fact that we're sinful. blinds us to the fact that we're prideful. blinds us to the fact that there's a God who loves us. And it says that we're fine. 
But that doesn't mean that we're not in a miserable state. So any action that God takes towards us that is saving is one of mercy. It's one of mercy. And so verse 4, we also see that God is full of goodness and loving kindness. And Paul is emphasizing, as he emphasizes the character of God, is saying, it's not based upon you and what you have done. You've been saved, but it's purely on the basis of God and his mercy why you were saved. It's because of his mercy, his goodness, his loving kindness. So that's one reason, but that's not where Paul stops. He also talks about God as Trinity. And so one thing that distinguishes the Christian faith among all other religions is our understanding of God in Trinity. And so I put this in the bulletin because I wanted you to be able to walk away with it and to have at least um, a little bit of a description when we say the word Trinity, what that means. We believe in one God who eternally and co-equally exists in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Each distinct person equally possesses the same divine nature. So the Father has the very same nature as the Son, as the Spirit, and they actually all share the same divine nature. Three distinct persons, equally, eternally existing as one, Now, the thing that distinguishes them is the roles they take within the Trinity. That's what distinguishes them. It's not that the Father has a different nature than the Son or the Spirit. It's the role they take amongst one another. And I know that's a lot. And so some of you are going, lost me at Trinity, lost it. That's okay. Um, Understand that this is one of those things of the Christian faith, those doctrines that we, that's that's portrayed in the Word of God. It's one of those things we're called to grow in. It takes time. It's a complex doctrine. There's some doctrines a little bit more simple. There's some a little more difficult. This is one of those doctrines that no matter how much you grow in, it's still somewhat baffling. It's going, okay, this whole three-in-one thing. Um, We could spend a lot more time trying to unpack it and how amazing it is that God does exist in Trinity, and and maybe that would be great for a great sermon series one time. But right now, we're just going to unpack it as Paul does here in this chapter. And he emphasizes each member of the Trinity. So we'll walk through how he does it. Number one, we see the Father ordained our salvation. We're told we're saved by His mercy. The Father says, I am of great mercy. I desire to have a people for my own possession. Therefore, I will pour out my mercy that I will transform a sinful people to be my people. And his mercy comes to us by his Spirit and his Son. So in verse 5, he goes to the Spirit, and we see the Spirit applies our salvation. He's the one, in verse 5, that regenerates us and washes us. We're going to come back there and camp out in a moment because I want us to understand what it means, how the Spirit applies that. But if you look at verse 6, we see the Son accomplishes our salvation. In verse 4, we're told that the goodness and loving kindness of our Father has appeared. How has the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared? appeared in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. If you remember 
Two weeks ago, we were in Titus chapter 2. We saw that the grace of God has appeared. That referred to Jesus. The glory of God will appear. That referred to Jesus. So here the goodness and loving kindness of God, his mercy appeared. It's Jesus. That's, that's what it is referring to. And so we have Jesus who has appeared that he would accomplish our salvation. And he did that by going to the cross by dying on the cross, taking our sins, paying the price for them, and then three days later, rising, showing that he's conquered sin, death, and Satan, showing that he, he is the Son of God, Lord and Savior. We see that salvation is only possible because Jesus has died and risen from the grave. And if you look at verse 6, it says that the Spirit comes to us through Jesus. Notice the flow from verse 5 and 6. It says, He saved us, not because, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, a renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes to us through Jesus Christ. So we're going to look a little bit about what does it mean that the Spirit comes to us through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus accomplished salvation. It's now possible because of what he did at the cross. But how is it that you and I come to have faith in Jesus? And that's through the work of the Spirit. So that's what we're going to work, look at. The work of the Spirit. So number one, the Spirit comes to us by mercy. Look at verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us. God saves us through Jesus, the goodness and loving kindness that God appeared. Um, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Okay, so how did you do it? But according to his own mercy, now let me tell you what his mercy looked like, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the work of the Spirit is an act of mercy that comes to us from the Father, emphasizing we did not earn it. We did not do anything that merited the Spirit coming and washing us, regenerating us, but He simply came as an act of mercy through the Father. We see the Spirit regenerates us. In verse 6 and verse 5, according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. The word regeneration means new birth. If you remember, when, John, when Jesus was talking in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, and, and he said, you must be born again to be saved, and then he begins talking about the role of the Spirit, this is what that looks like. The Spirit is the one who regenerates us, the one who makes us new, in a sense gives us this new birth. If you look at then the next one, the Spirit renews us. So we have this washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The word new, or the word renewal, refers to new beginning, new nature. So these two words, regeneration, renewal, both meaning new birth, new nature, are put there to emphasize that God's mercy, when it comes to us through the Spirit, gives us a new nature. We're born again, made new, from spiritual death to spiritual life. No longer are we what we see in verse 3, the foolish, wicked hater. But now because of God's mercy, we've gone undergone a total identity transformation. 
We've gone from sinfulness to holiness, from outcast to son to child of God. We've gone from enemy to friend. There's been a, a complete renewal. It's not a remodel. It's not what we're talking about. He hasn't improved us, enhanced us. He's made us completely and absolutely new. In fact, what the Bible uses to, to describe this is we are a new creation. Something altogether different. We've gone from spiritual death, ignorant of God, foolish of God, haters of, of one another, being hated by others, the whole description we see in verse 3, then because of God's mercy, making us new by the Spirit, we've come into new birth. We're now children of God. And what's amazing is that even, even as the Spirit regenerates us and renews us, He then doesn't leave us, but we're told that then He lives in us in passages like the book of Ephesians, which is another letter written by Paul. We're told that the Spirit seals us. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. He makes us holy when He makes us new. And then He lives in us that we would what? Live holy lives. He empowers us to, be, to live in holiness as we wait for the return of Jesus. So what are we to insist upon? We're to insist upon who we were before saved. We're to insist on that we were saved by God's mercy through the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit, who has made us new. So what is the result of God's mercy then? Because that's what also we see here in this passage. In verse 7, we see the words, so that being justified by His grace. So one, we see that we are justified by His grace. Remember, verse 3, we're foolish, we're sinful, we're wicked. At that moment, God as judge looks upon us and says, sinful, guilty, unrighteous. Because of that, we deserve the wrath of God. Now, by an act of His mercy, He says, justified, declared righteous. What's amazing, it's as if we had never sinned. It's not like, oh, I've just kind of wiped them underneath the rug. You're okay now. We'll start fresh. He says, no, I've actually given you the righteousness of my son, Jesus, which is perfect in every way. And I apply that to you, which we know is applied by the working of the Spirit when he made us new. So when God looks at us, he says, child of mine with my righteousness. Perfect innocent, holy, not the least speck of impurity. That's how God sees you. Do you see why it's good to be reminded of the gospel, of our salvation? Because as we walk through this world and as we we go through life, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to begin looking at how we fail in things and how things happen and are applied to us. And we go, I'm not that good. I am sinful. God surely can't love me. I'm not good enough to be used by God. And God's saying, no, I have made you new. My righteousness is upon you that you would be made new and be my child. Let us insist upon that. But really, when we look at this, it says, so that being justified, when the Father ordained our salvation, 
that the Son would come, die on a cross, and then that the Spirit would make us new, the purpose of that was justification. So, in one sense, that being justified by His grace is a summary of what God did in verses 4 and 5. So we're not really at what the real goal is here yet. Justification is not the end means. It's beautiful. It's amazing. We hold on to it. We never, we never compromise on justification. But it's not the end result. What we see, though, as we keep going in verse 7, it says, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The point is, the words um, might become mean being made, or we've been made. So we've been made for the life to come. That, that's what it means. We've, in verse 7, so we might become heirs. So you'd become the heir of eternal life. You have this hope, this confident expectation in eternal life. So I used this illustration before. I think it was at Easter, but I think it's helpful here again. So my wife and I, you know, we've adopted our son Caleb from Thailand. And um, it's, it's a wonderful process that we've gone through and are going through. We're not quite done yet. Um, hopefully, our adoption will be finalized within a month or two. Hopefully by this tax year. Uh, you can be praying for that. Uh, in order for this to happen, I'll say we, but know that I mean my wife, um, an amazing amount of work was done <laughs> for this. Uh, a massive amount of paperwork was done, which my wife has handled beautifully. Uh, we had to spend a lot of money, primarily, which was raised by uh, many friends and family members and even people that sometimes we did not know. Um, we had to travel to Thailand, where we, we spent about a week there, where we were actually able to, to then get Caleb and, and bring him home. When we came home and we came to SeaTac, we did not then sit after we came out of the, the terminal, and we did not say, well, you're here in America, have a great life, and walk away. We didn't go through the process of the paperwork, of the finances, of, of the waiting, of the traveling, of all the praying, of everything that went through, to then leave him. We did it for the relationship. We did it so he would be our child. We did it so that he would be with us. So now he is Caleb Jackson. That's, that's who he is. And so when the father has graciously sent forth his son in his spirit, it was so that we would be saved, declared righteous, and live with him. So the hope that we have of eternal life is that in all the ages to come, in the life to come, in eternity, we would be with God forever. And the word hope is used in confident expectation, meaning we're not kind of, maybe we're going that way, but we know because the Spirit has made us new, because we've been declared justified, that we will live with God forever. And that's the hope that we have. So Paul is saying, Titus, insist upon this. Don't let the church forget about this. Insist, Titus, insist. Make sure the church knows they're saved by God's mercy to be with God forever. And that's what we need to know. We need to know that we have been saved by an act of God's mercy 
through the work of His Son and Spirit, that we would be made new and live with Him forever. That's question one. Question two, we're able to answer a little bit shorter. But the question is, how does insisting upon these things lead to being devoted to good works? Because look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things. Okay, that's easy. Insist on this. We're able to walk through. We're to see. But then he says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So insist so that these things that you're insisting upon will actually be used to help us devote ourselves to good works. There's something about this insisting on these things that we need to remember so that we will be devoted to good works. And these things are excellent and profitable. So Paul's going, and these aren't bad things. These are good. And they're good for people. Just for people. They're good for the church, for believers, from believers. You need to know these things because they're beneficial, they're excellent, they're profitable for people. So let's, let's ask ourselves, how does insisting upon these things? Well, number one, these things remind us of our new identity in Christ. These things remind us of our new identity in Christ. In verses 1 and 2, look what Paul does. He encourages holy living. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. Something we all do so easily. Um, And then notice the word for. So do all of this for. Remember, he's going to explain why or how it is that we're to do all these things. He's saying, I want you to do all of these good works for you know who you used to be. And that's not who you are anymore because you've been washed and regenerated. That's not who you are. So by insisting on these things, it helps us remember of our new identity in Christ that we've been made new. His Spirit lives in us. That's not how we live in verse 3. But now we are able to be submissive to rulers and authority, be obedient, to be ready for good work, to not speak evil of others. Paul is not telling us to be something that we're not. He's saying, be who you are in Christ. Christ has made you holy that you would live holy. Remember, that's the whole point when we looked at chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, two weeks ago. It would be foolish for a butterfly who has now these beautiful wings and can fly all over to try to crawl back into a cocoon and try to be like the caterpillar again. It'd be foolish for him to now try to go back and walk in the old way of life. Just as it would be foolish as we who have been made holy by being made new by the Spirit to now walk as if we're not holy, to walk as if we're not a child of God, to walk as if we are an enemy of God. When God said, no, no, I have saved you. You'd be my child. You'd be my friend. You'd live with me in my house forever. We do good works because of who we are in Christ. These things, number two, these things increase our thankfulness to God. Let us never forget, we've been saved by God's mercy, not by any action of our own. We have to be reminded of that. Because functionally, many times we live and operate as if we're somehow meriting our salvation or paying God back for our salvation. 
But verse 5 cannot be any more clear. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Our entire salvation is merited to the act of God. You are saved because God loved you and poured his mercy richly upon you. That's why. You are not saved because you chose Jesus. You are not saved because you made Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. You are not saved because you invited Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior. And we use those words. Why don't you just invite Jesus into your life today? Why don't you make him Lord and Savior? He is Lord and Savior. He is king, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. He is king. The reason you believed in Jesus Christ is because of God's great mercy came upon you and the Spirit washed you and made you new. Verse 5 takes place, it's hard to like say, before and during, before and during our receiving of Christ. You did not place your faith in Jesus and then become washed and regenerated, which is the way we use our wording. Why don't you invite Jesus into your life today? Believe in Jesus. Make him your Lord and Savior. Do you want to choose Jesus today? Let me walk you through a prayer so you can now choose Jesus. No, that's not what takes place. The only reason we ever pray that God is Lord and Savior is because we have been washed and regenerated and made new, that we would be given new eyes and say, you are king, you are Lord, you are God. I am a sinner before you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. You see the difference? We didn't make God king. He is king. And through the washing and regeneration, we have new eyes that we would see him king. And that we could fall down before him and worship him. All this serves to show that our salvation is 100% based upon God's goodness, his mercy, and his grace. And as we reflect upon it, it continues to increase our thankfulness. That we, out of thankfulness, out of joy, would please God. When I, when I work and, and get a paycheck, when you work and get a paycheck, you're grateful for your paycheck, aren't you? But you're not really filled with thankfulness. I mean, you, you earned it. It's kind of what's due to you. you. You agreed, you entered into some kind of contract that you would work. You did the work. You merited the paycheck. It's nice. I love the paycheck. It doesn't bring me great joy, though. But now for us, when we were in our adoption process, um, we occasionally received a check from someone we hardly knew, from someone maybe we did know, maybe it was a friend or a relative. Sometimes it was a complete stranger. And sometimes it was a large amount of money that they donated. And, and all we would get is an email, maybe a notice, hey, this money's been added to your account. And we'd look and go, well, have you talked to that person in like five years? No, I haven't talked to that person like, forever. Why'd they give us? They didn't give it to us because we earned it. It's just by just an act of grace and mercy on their part. They're saying, we, we just want to help. And I tell you, those moments when we receive those, those checks, 
We were filled with thankfulness to the point of tears. We were filled with thankfulness. I remember I was actually with Mike, and we were, uh, we were in a conference in St. Louis. No, is that right, St. Louis? T4G? Louisville. It's Louisville. Big difference. Don't get those confused. And we're at the conference. I get a call. It's from one of my friends way back. And he says, hey, we want to we wanna donate. Okay, cool. You know, 50 bucks, you know. I want to give you $1,000. And we're just like, wow. I tell you, at that moment, I was downstairs in the, uh, in the underneath the arena, wherever, wherever that is. And I just, just broke down to tears. Just go, wow. Like, I did nothing for this. I mean, sure, we have this past relationship, but I haven't done anything to it. It's not like I've been watching his kids. It's not like I did something for him to merit this. Simply just act of mercy and grace. And at those moments, we were filled with great love and thankfulness. And when we reflect on how God saves us by absolute grace and mercy, knowing we did not choose him, we did not invite him, we simply received him, we're filled with joy and with thankfulness that then becomes very obvious in all the actions that we do. These things, number three, encourage us to practice regular repentance as we're reminded that we've been made holy, that we've been washed and regenerated. We've been made new by the Spirit. We increase in our hatefulness of sin. We don't like it because we've been made like God. Therefore, when we do things that God hates, and his, his spirit is in us, we, we hate that. And we increasingly hate that. It should be like when we sin, it's like tasting green, chunky, sour milk. It is nasty. And all we want to do is spit it out. And that, that's something that should increase over our Christian lives. So when God says, like, submit to authorities, and we all love submission, we go... Rather than recoiling at that idea and that command, we go that we know that we can do that through the Spirit who is in us, making us new, that through our submission, we would not only please God, but we would demonstrate His love to others. We'll see our lives as acts of worship. And when we don't, and when we do fall into sin, like we still do, we'll see it as sour milk, we'll hate it. And we'll practice repentance regularly. Number four, these things remind us that Jesus is returning. Remember, the Spirit has made us into new creations. We're spiritually alive. We've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life, and we're meant to be with God forever. You may, though, ask, are we meant to be together with God forever like this? I mean, with a a spiritually alive soul, spirit within us. But what about this dying, decaying body that hurts a little bit more every day when we wake up? No, this isn't the end. In James, it's really neat. James says that because of what God has done in his word, saving us, we have become first fruits. And what this means is that when Jesus returns, he's going to make everything new. New heavens and new earth. He's also going to give us new bodies. Bodies that don't decay. Bodies that are made perfect and holy. So we'll live with him forever. Because remember, that's the end goal. Being with God forever. But not in a sinful world, but in a new holy world. A perfect, a perfect world. 
One that he's made new, and we're not going to live in this new perfect world with decaying bodies, but he'll give us new bodies that will forever live with him. And so we're said to be first fruits. And first fruit is always the indication of what the rest of the, co- rest of the crop will produce. So he's saying, you've been made new. You're the first fruit. And just as you've been made new, so also will one day you'll receive this new body. The, the being made new alive in spirit and nature is the guarantee that there's going to be a new heavens and earth. Is the guarantee that there'll be a new body. So again, our hope is not wishy-washy. It's not I hope to win the lottery. It is a confident expectation that we will be with God forever. And just as God made us into new creations, one day he'll make us, he'll make everything new. And the way we wait for him is by living in holiness. We looked at that in verses 13 and 14 of last of two weeks ago. But let me illustrate it this way. My wife, when we lived in Michigan, it was real easy for her to jump on a plane in Chicago and jump down to Oklahoma <clears throat> because her, parent, her parents fly for American Airlines. So were, she was able to jump on a standby ticket, jump down there pretty easy. There's a lot of flights that way, not so easy from Seattle. Um, so occasionally she would, jump, she would jump down there to see her sister or family. Sometimes she'd take the kids. Uh, sometimes she'd go for three, four, five days. Um, usually, though, as she's gone, you know, I'm going about my, my business, but it's like, okay, tomorrow's the day she returns or today's the day she returns. So what do we do when the wife is about to return? It's like cleaning mode, like massive, like, all right, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do a project. I want her to be pleased. And so I, I don't do it. Whatever I'm about to do, I don't do to earn her love. I do it because I, I love her. And so now I, I do this project. I, I fix something. I build something. I clean something. I, something I do that I know. And she comes home. She's going, oh, you did this. I'm like, yes, I love you. Um, and I was able to do that uh, several times as, as she went down there. And that's what happens because we know Christ's return is imminent, could come at any moment before we leave this building today, before we get home, before the end of this week. I mean, could come at any moment. Our lives are lived in anticipation of his return that we would please him in all that we do because we love him and we look forward to being with him. So we don't work to merit what he's done to pay back, but we do it out of joy because of who he is and we're so excited that he's going to return, and we'll be with him forever. So what are we to insist upon? Christians are zealous for good works because they have been saved by God's mercy and been made new to live with him forever. We are to be zealous for good works. I want you to think about that as you leave. Are you zealous? Have you been living zealously? Where are you at and how have I, how has my life actually lived as a sacrifice to God? Reflect on the gospel. Reflect on his grace and mercy that's come to us through his son and his spirit. Ask God to help make you zealous. Ask God that he would help you understand that you've been made new. And it's only the beginning. The rest is guaranteed to happen that we'll be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for passages like this that help us gain such a clear understanding of your gospel and how you've loved us and how you've saved us. 
God, specifically for those who do know you, I pray that they are comforted by your word. I pray that they are comforted, that they are saved by your grace and mercy, and that you've made them new. I pray they are comforted, that they will forever live with you. But God, I pray also that we are greatly spurred on in our faith, knowing that you have made us new 